You're listening to a podcast from Heart. Welcome to the Heart Podcast. My name is Bart DeBelder, and we're going to be talking about a plenary session at the British Cardiovascular Society on the pathophysiology and management of acute coronary syndromes. With me are Professor Keith Channon from Oxford and Dr. Jim McLennigan from Leeds. Uh, Jim also led the improvement program on the introduction of primary angioplasty in the UK uh, as the preferred reperfusion therapy for ST elevation myocardial infarction. So gentlemen, we talked about pathophysiology primarily, Keith, and uh, there were quite a lot of complex questions posed to you. Uh, would you like to just live, give us a, a brief overview of historically where we've come uh, from and where we're at now with our understanding of the pathophysiology of acute coronary syndromes? Thanks, Mark. So what I summarised in my talk was where we've come over the last 125 years, because it was Osler 125 years ago who first described the relationship between angina and acute coronary syndromes and problems in the coronary artery. And of course we now know that MIs, both non-STEMIs and STEMIs, are driven by coronary plaques which become vulnerable and then are subject to some complication driven by the bloodstream leading to coronary artery thrombosis. And that thrombosis leading to either total occlusion of the vessel or partial occlusion is complicated by downstream embolization leading to myocardial necrosis. And that drives the clinical features of myocardial infarction that we all know about. So the chest pain from the patient, the ECG changes, the biomarker release, uh, typically TROP positive patients being labeled as having had an MI and TROP negative as unstable angina. So that's the central role of the plaque. And what's more of a challenge is to understand why the plaque becomes unstable or vulnerable, leading to rupture or erosion, and how we link the upstream events in the plaque to the downstream damage and the pathophysiology of the infarct itself within the myocardium. We talked a little bit about the pharmacology of managing these patients and also interventional cardiological techniques. And it's rather interesting, this downstream-upstream phenomenon. Does most of the damage occur, do you think, at the time of the plaque erosion? Well, there's clearly a, an ability for us to then aggravate things by doing an intervention. We can put a stent in and then we can start to see a downstream showering. So the difficulty in terms of managing is how do we actually make sure we get the benefits of what we're trying to achieve, sealing and healing, and yet you know, limiting the damage that we can actually ourselves do? Right. I think that we've focused probably excessively for lots of good reasons on what has happened to the coronary artery and to the culprit plaque leading up to the patient's presentation. And we fail to recognize the importance of what continues to go on in the upstream artery and in the microvasculature at the time of the intervention or the treatment and indeed for some time afterwards. So for example, using cardiac MRI to look at the downstream myocardium, we see some quite striking differences. In some patients, the artery is reopened during primary angioplasty. There is TIMI3 flow in the artery, and the patient does very well with a small infarct. So at six months later, the infarct, as demonstrated by cardiac MRI, is small. In other patients in whom the interventionist thinks he or she has done an equally good job in putting a stent in, we find that both early and at late, there's extensive myocardial damage and scarring on the MRI. So that tells us that the processes that link the upstream problem 
in the coronary artery with the plaque and the thrombus and the ultimate damage that the patient's myocardium has is linked by many more steps in that pathway than just the original presentation of the patient and the intervention. There are steps related to the intervention and the pharmacotherapy itself and there are also biological parts of the remodeling and the healing process which I believe will all be amenable to therapeutic intervention. So do you think in terms of the way forward, our, I mean, at the moment we're relying upon classical risk factor evaluation. We've got ECG changes, we've got troponin, uh, we've got markers of renal function and so on. Where do you think we're going to be going with other markers and other indicators of, of things that we can intervene on? So we've talked about risk and modifiable risk. Where, where is the new wave of therapies going to come from in terms of modifiable risk? So I think the modifiable risk will be trying to learn more about the, the pathophysiological processes that link the upstream injury in the vessel and the processes there to the final degree of myocardial damage, because currently that's what's irreversible. And so if we can identify the biological processes in the coronary microvasculature, in inflammation, in myocardial apoptosis, in necrosis, if we can find which biological processes are driving those endpoints for that patient, then we can try and find rational therapeutic targets and, and drugs with which to make inroads. If we continue to focus on what happened before the patient presents in the, in the artery, and if we continue to focus on downstream myocardial indicators for diagnosis, such as ECG changes or subsequent troponin release or LV function at six months, we will fail to make any inroads into that link between the upstream and the downstream events. We talked about the NICE guidance and international guidelines in the management of these patients. And there's new information that's come um, apparent even since the NICE guidelines were, were developed. In particular, the TIME ACS trial uh, came out with this interesting correlation that the highest risk patients get the most benefit from a very early intervention. So, Jim, do you think that trial is sufficient evidence on its own for us to be swinging programs now to saying we must really risk stratify our patients early and make a decision about who gets to a cath lab very early? I think it's probably not sufficient evidence yet, and I think you'll probably look towards more studies. It is interesting, though, how things have changed because it's not very long ago that the standard treatment, if you like, was to cool patients down. The standard treatment was to admit patients, to give them aspirin, to give them heparin, to give them other antiplatelet drugs, and to wait. And it was considered that intervention very early was, was dangerous or damaging. And we've gone from that to saying they should be intervened upon within 72 hours and then within 48 hours, and now we're suggesting intervention much earlier for those at high risk. Um, listening to what Keith said, of course, it does make you think that if there are ongoing events in the proximal lesion and things are continuing to embolize distally, then perhaps inter early intervention is right. And I suppose you just want intervention at a time when you think your various agents have, have become activated so that you're not going to do more damage with the interventional procedure. But I suspect that one study on its own won't change us and won't move everybody into the very early phase of intervention. And although we can discuss the timing, we do seem to be in the era now of at least taking people to the cath lab mm. and taking angiograms. And one thing, um, Keith, that we've marked on is, of course, if we, we are finding a lot of patients who are having undoubtedly clinical syndromes, they've had a troponin rise, but their arteries don't look so bad. 
are we going to have to make clinical judgments about those patients or do we use modern imaging techniques to try and figure out what's happened to these patients and how do we manage them? So I think that primary PCI and early angiography in non-STEMI patients has not only improved the treatment of those patients who have those conditions, they've also made us as interventional cardiologists realise that we've been misdiagnosing and perhaps mismanaging conditions which present as myocardial infarction. Um, we now recognise Takatsugo cardiomyopathy as a relatively common condition and we're probably finding patients who have myocarditis and have embolic MI rather than plaque events. Equally, and, and what your question really hints at, we're also faced with decision-making problems in the cath lab where we can't always marry up the culprit lesion to the downstream event. And this has highlighted the need for more diagnostic information. And we're going to obtain that either with intracoronary imaging, for example, optical coherence tomography can tell us a lot about culprit lesions at a level of detail which angiography cannot offer, and even intravascular ultrasound can't. Or we need more informative biomarkers which tell us about pathological processes, not just downstream myocardial necrosis, on which all of our decision-making is currently predicated. So in MI type 2, that's the myocardial infarction driven by um, imbalance of the mismatch between oxygen supply to the myocardium and its need, uh, we need to understand whether that myocardial infarction is generated by a, a plaque event or whether it's ischemia due to anemia, thyrotoxicosis, high output states. And right now, our slightly narrow vision when we approach a patient with myocardial infarction, despite the advances that we've made, mean that we don't do that well. And I think we will see a need for a more sophisticated, inclusive approach to coronary imaging, to myocardial imaging, and to the pathophysiology that links the upstream event in the artery to the downstream myocardial necrosis. I think it's a very important point, and I think that as cardiologists we've regarded angiography as the gold standard diagnostic test, and it is a paradigm shift for us that we need to, and I try to reinforce to the junior staff that if we have a patient who's had a non-ST segment elevation myocardial infarction with ECG changes, with chest pain, with a raised troponin, the purpose of the angiogram is to determine whether there's any indication for revascularization. It's not to make or refute the diagnosis. And the normal coronary angiogram certainly does not refute the diagnosis. And that's a change because you used to see patients having normal coronary angiograms in whom all the medication was stopped and they were discharged. And that's entirely wrong. So we need to get away from the idea that the angiogram makes the diagnosis. The purpose of the angiogram is to look at the indication for revascularization. We talked briefly about type 2 infarts uh, in the session and how, as a group of cardiologists in general, if we see a troponin rise, somebody who's presented with AF or sepsis, we treat the AF or sepsis. But should this be a group that we should be taking more attention of? I think we are and we should be. Uh, increasingly self-critical about this group and that as interventional cardiologists we don't give in to the temptation to necessarily treat angiographically visible coronary artery disease uh, unless there is clear evidence that there is a good reason to do so. In the acute coronary setting I, I think the evidence guiding us on the mandate for interventional not is still limited and we need to look uh, quite critically at our practice in the acute setting perhaps in the same way that we have done using pressure wire studies in the more elective patients to make objective decisions about 
medical therapy versus intervention. Now, Jim, to swing into STEMIs, you were the puppet master behind the swing of reperfusion therapy from thrombolysis to primary angioplasty. And we were set the challenge of trying to get 95% of all STEMIs being treated with primary angioplasty within a three-year timetable. Did we achieve it? Yes, I think we probably did. It uh, As soon as you put figures on it, uh, it means then you have to define the denominator. And uh, there was some dubiety as to whether it was 95% of patients or 95% of the country of geographical coverage, etc., etc. But yes, we achieved certainly more than 90% within a period of three years. So 90%, of 94 or 95% of all patients with STEMI are now being treated with uh, primary PCI and, and very few are being treated with thrombolysis. So yes, we have achieved that. Um, and that's a remarkable turnaround in clinical practice over quite a short period of time. And the networks and all the individual cardiologists and all the, the, the cath lab staffs have worked very hard to achieve that. I think what we were going on to talk about today was that that doesn't mean that we can relax. I think there are lots of things that we can do to improve the service for patients. And that is about identifying the patients appropriately. It's about making sure that patients who don't receive any reperfusion therapy are are not being missed. If they're not receiving therapy, it's appropriate that they don't receive therapy. That patients receive therapy as quickly as possible uh, and, and optimal therapy. And I think the area of distal embolization, um, aspiration catheters, adjunctive therapy, there's a lot still to come out and there's a lot still that will change over the next uh, five or ten years. I mean, after the National Infarct Angioplasty Project, we tried to learn lessons from international studies and from other countries' experience and we set that into a number of targets to how good a service should you be setting up. Well, you, you actually showed us data to say that we're not quite achieving what we set out to do. We've, we've sort of hit certain targets, but there are still lots of centres that don't quite achieve the sort of best service you would like yes, to. Yes, yes. How are we going to take that forward to try and get even better pathways? Well, you're absolutely right that um, if people receive primary PCI, they should receive it as quickly as possible. And the standard that was set by the Care Quality Commission was a call to balloon time of less than 150 minutes in 75% of patients. And we have just about achieved that. But clearly, the shorter the time, the better, and the higher proportion of patients achieved or who are treated within that time, uh, the better. What has been shown and what was shown in the NIAP study was that if you are diagnosed by the ambulance service and taken directly to a cardiac cath lab, that is your shortest possible call to balloon time. If you're taken to an accident emergency, if you're taken to another hospital, if you're taken to coronary care, that introduces quite a long delay. Another hospital would introduce a delay of some 45 or 50 minutes to the pathway. And therefore, while there are little things that we can do, the big thing that we can do is to increase the number of patients who are direct referrals from the ambulance service to a 24-7 primary PCI centre. And that will be the biggest saving uh, in terms of time and will give the largest proportion of patients timely uh, primary PCI. In terms of what we talked about with the pathophysiology, are there lessons to be learned about how we should do primary angioplasty? I think there are lots of unknowns about how we should do primary angioplasty. Um, I think we assume that all primary angioplasty is the same, and of course it's not all the same. And there are differences in centres, there are differences in operators, there are differences in drugs and devices used. So I think we're going to see an awful lot more about that uh, over the next decade. Um, there have been issues about drugs, and we have nice guidance about the new antiplatelet drugs. We have nice guidance about bivalirudin. We have the complication, of course, that any new treatment or any new nice guidance looks at that particular drug in isolation and doesn't look at it in combination with, with, with other new agents and with what's gone before. So 
we're a little bit confused in the sense that we have guidance which says we, sh- we can use Prasagrel or we can use Tacagrelor or we can use Bivalirudin, but of course there's nothing about the combinations of these drugs because all of the nice technical appraisals by definition have looked at these things more or less in isolation. So I think there is some confusion about that and there are different strategies being used in different hospitals around the country. I think the issue about how we do the procedure, um, clearly we should do the procedure quickly, clearly we should have experienced operators doing the procedure, I am a, a big advocate of, of thrombus aspiration, and yet that is remains a, a, a very crude device. And I can't help feeling that there will be use of the mechanical devices, use of distal protection, use of, of, of a whole variety of different instruments to reduce the amount of distal embolization at the time of the procedure, as well as, in the fullness of time, new pharmacological treatments to treat the distal embolization that has already occurred. Well, thank you, gentlemen. I think we've heard that we've come an enormous distance since uh, Osler first opined. And uh, we've also heard that uh, although we've done really made some amazing transformations in the country over the last few years, we're still only partway down this journey as we strive towards optimal care for the patients with acute coronary syndromes. Thank you very much. Thank you. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.